it's almost like I need stuff that I can't argue with. It's just objective. Yeah. I did beat him. I did give that speech and get, and, and get views. And I did give the commencement to get a standing ovation. Like every time my, my script goes, you're not that good. I'm like, this is tangible and I cannot argue with it. Welcome to the first, and hopefully not last, episode of Ad Blocking with Jason Dwayne Smith. The world around us is, well, different. We're living in a time that tests all of our boundaries and beliefs. It's not always easy. And sometimes talking about ads is the last thing any of us want to do. Ad Blocking is a podcast, slash maybe a safe space, where real people, real marketers, talk about everything but advertising. Stories of growing up, coming out, falling down, and looking in. Underneath it all, we're all just humans. For my first discussion, I had the fortune of sitting down with Scott Hess, Chief Marketing Officer of Spark Foundry, but more importantly, a dad, an artist, and much more. Scott and I talk about everything from poetry to garage band, imposter syndrome, and even anxiety. Yeah, that thing. I'm not sure of exactly where these discussions will go, but hope our ad industry enjoys my first conversation of vulnerability with one of the industry's most respected personalities. And with that, let's jump in. I want to thank you for hanging out with me on this fun experiment you know I've, I've done one already and what a blast so i'm hoping the same for our chat Uh-oh. and uh we'll just have a conversation that's it you okay. know i've, I've right. got some potential questions but we'll just have a dialogue and i think a good you know starting point for this scott is i started this whole journey to just give people that i love and care about in the ad industry a uh, a space to reconnect, you know, and talk about what we care about and what's important to us outside of our day-to-day world and just being real people talking about real things that, you know, make us human. And as we were talking about uh, diet restrictions and maybe even some self-judgment, maybe a good question to start with, man, is like, how have you forgiven yourself during COVID, right? Seriously, like everyone is struggling with this, you know, how about I'll tell you what I'm struggling with. And then I'd love to hear your story. For me, what I've struggled with is, am I being a great enough parent during this time? You know, the amount of time I have to spend at home on my computer when my kids are learning in class and they finish school at two o'clock, Scott, I've got another four or five hours to work, you know? And I'm struggling with a little bit of that. Am I being a good enough parent and managing their screen time? Am I sharing enough of my space with them? I should be sharing more, right? Because I'm home, but I'm not really home. And it's really kind of giving me a a bit of a challenge and, you know, a little bit of self-guilt. But I, I have to forgive myself and know that no one can be perfect. Everyone's dealing with the same challenges. So I love to hear your story, man, like something that maybe you've been kind of battling and how you found a way to forgive yourself and 
and maybe give yourself space to just, you know, not be perfect during these times. So something you said resonated with me, which is, am I being a good enough? And then you can put a blank space behind that. I would say that for better and for worse, a huge thing I deal with is, am I being a good enough father, husband, son, neighbor, employee, boss, colleague, I mean, citizen. (laughs) So that whole am I good enough thing is bigger than COVID. Um, You know, maybe to some extent during COVID, um, I have given myself latitude to I'm not being my best eater or my best exerciser or my best worker every day of the week. I'm absolutely not. Um, I kind of have in a tiny way appreciated the excuse of it's a freaking pandemic. So maybe, maybe I can lower my expectations just a little bit. I can't leave the house. Um, You know, how great can I really be expected to be right now? And I have to say, not all the time. Sometimes I have all kinds of anxiety. Sometimes uh, I have the exact same questions about am I being good enough. But if there is a way I forgive myself during the pandemic, it's and I've said this to my kids and I've said it to my wife and, I'm, uh, and, and I've said it to all my colleagues, like it's a freaking pandemic, you know, just get through it. Um, I always say to I, always, I love to give advice to new parents because, yeah. in fact, I love to give advice to anybody that's going through something that I already went through. And the reason is because inevitably everything I've been through, I've suffered ridiculously, Hmm. probably because, um, probably because I don't listen to other people very well and all that kind of stuff. But, but I love when I have, I'm out the other side of something and I can tell somebody, Hey, here's a piece of advice that had someone given it to me. I wouldn't have had to suffer quite as badly as I did. And Hmm. so, um, the, the advice I always give to new parents is, you know what, for the first three years of your kid's life, cut yourself a huge amount of slack. Uh, don't worry about being perfect to your relationship. You're going to be bad at it. Don't worry about being perfect at your job. That's going to suffer. Don't worry about being a perfect son to your parents are going to be in your business with your kids and stuff like that. Um, your only goal when you have a kid, I think, for the first three years is to keep yourself, your partner and the kid alive. Because my experience of being a new parent, and you may have had a similar similar thing, is um, you don't really remember details of the first three years because you're so goddamn tired and stressed out. And so I always say, like, hey, lower the bar for yourself, make make the bar survival and you'll be okay." And I think in a weird way, I should have given myself this advice at the beginning of COVID. I've got it now, which is just get through the days, you know, And, and, and what you do is good enough. Um, and that's weird because, look, if it's a regular non-pandemic sunny day out, you know, I want to kill work. I want to make sure I go outside and run. I want to make sure that I encourage every person in my family to go out and take advantage of it. And during COVID, it's kind of like it's a pandemic. You know, whatever I did today is good enough. Well, you combine the trait of or the presence of COVID with Scott, I mean, what else can happen to us this year? Seriously, what 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 else can be thrown at us? What California with purple and orange skies, right? 
we've got all of our political spectrum. We've got this cultural awakening. I mean, I, I remember a day um, this summer where I was talking to my neighbors and you know, we spent a lot of our summer in Michigan. So I was talking to one of my neighbors in Michigan and you know, when a lot of the sort of racial discussion arose this summer around George Floyd, I had gotten a lot of emails and really great sort of, you know, loving and caring emails and calls about how I'm doing. But this day was a little beyond that, like early phase, Scott, after people kind of got used to, hey, we got to figure out how to manage this racial challenge. And my neighbor just asked me, had nothing to do with George Floyd or anything about this racial. She just asked me like how I was doing. And it made me realize like, I must have this look or presence that is a little less um, upbeat than I normally do. And I guess it brings me to a question for you is, what has changed about you in these last 10 months? I was struck when you said that um, about how you doing can be the most innocuous thing you can ever ask somebody. How you doing? I mean, it, you know, I don't even care. Just how you doing? It's as good as high. But you picked up on somebody looking at you and saying, how you doing? Like, whoo, that guy looks like he's a wreck. And, and um, it, it, it really told me, like, I'm changing, Scott. Like, I'm, I'm not even just physically, but this is a person that knows me pretty well. Really good, good people, great neighbor, you know? Yeah. And, it, and, it, and it came from, like, a rich, deep care. And it, and it wasn't about, you know, just emotionally. It was just, like, I took that as I, I can see you – I can see a new you. I don't know if it's good or bad or I don't know what it is, but I see it and I just want to know, how are you? And, and it kind of caused me to look inside and I go, man, I, I, have, I have certainly changed a lot in the last 10 months. And I want to share a little bit with you on my end, but it, I've been asking a lot of my friends, like, what do you think has really changed about your beliefs how you uphold yourself, how you interact with people, how you stay strong, you know, how have you sort of evolved and changed over these last 10 months, man? A, a couple things come to mind for me in particular that um, at some level, um, especially as it relates to George Floyd and, and all the issues around race that have come to the fore uh, at work, in my neighborhood, uh, among friends, um, I would say that the most significant change there is I feel less fearful and more courageous about just freaking going right at it. Hmm. Um, so on work conversations, um, I feel like, and I'm ashamed to say it, that I'm a much better advocate and ally now than I was before because I feel like I got some kind of license feels mm. like the world's fucking ending on 10 different levels and um, if it's if the world's gonna end then I'm just gonna speak my piece so I feel like I've been at least a little bit empowered uh, <laughs> to just to say out loud the shit that's troubling me to and, and one of the things is um, I had to examine my heart and mm. 
Um, I have to say, and this is going to sound self-congratulatory, but I, I know I have a good heart. And so I've had to spend some time on a bunch of different fronts in my life accepting that. And it's not the easiest thing to do, but to really be like, you know what? I, yeah, you know what? I, I'm coming from a good place. Doesn't mean I'm doing all the right things and saying all the right things, but I'm coming from a good place. And then you couple that with a little bit of courage and it's amazing what can happen. So a big thing for me in the pandemic has been to be at least a little bit more plain spoken in situations that are difficult. Then the other thing is a much softer thing, which is I've always been creative. Um, I like to write poetry and, and write, just write in general. I write every day, but um, I've always loved music. And I picked up early in the pandemic, my acoustic guitar that I've never been particularly good at. I've taken the lessons and I've been playing it every single day. I got great calluses going. I, I have better feel on it than I ever have had. Um, I picked up GarageBand on my iPad and um, my God, did I do some horrific, bad sounding stuff on it to begin with. But yesterday I, I covered a song that I've liked for a long time. And the, and the courage thing comes into play is that I'm just fucking texting people. I'm sending them. I'm sending this stuff to people. Um, and yesterday I sent something that I'd worked on and it's just so much better than it was before. And, and several of my friends, especially one of them that's pretty much thought everything I did was crappy and he's and he doesn't really want to hear from me anymore. I sent him this one and he's like you're actually, you've got something there. You just made that yours. That's really good. So um, I, I feel like um, there's a lot of things I haven't loved, but I will take uh, a combination of maybe getting a little bit more courage and, and being a little bit more reckless with my creativity. Those two things together, just like, you know, I always say to friends and to my kids, you know, Almost every significant um, growth opportunity I've had has come from some horrific hardship I would never choose. I would give anything to get out of it, to route around it. But then you go through it and you pick up stuff that you wouldn't get otherwise. And then on the other side of this thing, you're like, I would never trade what I got to have skipped the hardship. So I'm, I'm hopeful that at least for me and COVID, that, that those two things, a little bit more courage, a little bit more creativity, um, when we finally have some sanity on all these different fronts, things stop burning, uh, people stop dying of, of, of this virus, and, and, and we have some sense of progress uh, racially and socioeconomically and politically, that the things I won't give back are those two things. Well, it's a good reminder for me in that sometimes, Scott, I want everything to be perfect, you know? Um, yes, I'm accepting that that isn't going to be the case, but I'll be damned if I'm happy about it, you know? And I've learned in my life that I've gotten a lot better from, pardon my language, but just kind of fucking up, you know, like taking some risk, not always making it perfect. And actual failure has been a very big part of my life. Now, when I say failure, though, I want to define that. I'm not talking about according to anyone else's standards like that. I'm, I'm not saying that someone measured me and said I didn't accomplish what that expectation was. When I say failure, I mean this sort of internal sense of like what I can achieve, what I want to do, what I think I'm capable of. And when I don't meet that, um, it can be hurtful, but I've always come out stronger 
and I'm listening to you talking, you said it three times in our chat so far is, you know, some form of overcoming hardships, you know, and it sounds like Scott, it is a part of your being. I love for you to talk to me about hardships that you've experienced, or if there's any one particular or, or a number of them that you think have really shaped the person that you are today and given you the courage that you have in what you bring into the world? Big question. Um, and a hard question. Um, I mean, the amount of failures that I've had are innumerable. Um, and obviously they start way, way back. It's funny when I was thinking about this conversation and knowing that this topic would come up, I, the thing that came into my mind was very innocuous, but, but also extremely vivid. It's so goofy, but I look like, well, what's the first time I remember being conscious of failure. I remember going to, maybe this will take me somewhere good because this is, this is very innocuous, but I was, I went to like a teen dance at the, at the summer swim club that I went to. And my best friend, this guy, Pete, was just like, it was the, it was the summer of the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack. Yeah, yeah. And so we used to hang out in his basement a lot. And we'd sort of, you know, we were young. I don't know if we were 11 or 12 or something like that. Maybe 13. And we would, we would be dancing to this, um, trying to, to imitate the moves that we saw and everything. And I, I was feeling it pretty good. And the thing was, this guy, Pete, was just an incredible dancer, incredible dancer. So we go out to the teen dance and some of the older kids there are, are talking like, what do you guys want to hear? And we're like, we definitely want to hear Saturday Night Fever. And I remember one of the older kids said, can either you guys, can you guys dance to this? And I was like, of course we can dance to this. What are you talking about? Put it on. So the, the thing starts up and Pete starts dancing amazing and I start dancing. And I can tell just by the reaction because I had not seen myself, I could tell that he was doing really well. And I was not, I was not even remotely pulling it off at all. <laughs> and oh, I love this. As, as innocuous as that is, I just like, I, it's one of the first times I remember just being um, affected by how people were reacting to me. And, and cause you know, as you, as you probably know, like at this point in my career, a ton of what I do is end up in front of people talking and it could be, you know, two people in a meeting, but I've done 4,000 people in Vegas in a, you know, in a, in a multi uh, uh, ballroom setup and stuff like that. And so, so uh, when I think about that, it's, it's, so it's, I'm just now realizing why that's a thing. I remember that I had not rehearsed. I had not seen myself. I had not prepared. I just kind of felt kind of good. And I was in the moment and stuff like that. And I remember how horrible it was. I was ashamed. People were like, you know, the guy that I said we could dance, he's like, you can't dance. And I was like, shit. And, and to some extent, and I can think of a lot of other failures I've had presenting, but just the need to prepare, to rehearse, to, um, you know, I still, before I give a speech, I will rehearse out loud. I will often record it, um, either on video or on audio. And, 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 and I'll, you know, I, I was lucky enough to give a commencement speech a while back and I, and I gave several 
like rehearsal performances of it to friends in advance to see where the laughs came and 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 to see if they were looking at their phone at any point stuff like that Mm. um i i just never want to feel that i've over promised and under delivered in front of a group of people because the way it feels when they when they look at you when you're not delivering what you promised it's just i don't know man i'm not strong enough to take it do you do you feel like I can relate to that. I can relate to, <clears throat> I'm probably an over planner and I can be a micromanager sometimes. I, I, I have to, I, I always tell people when they go, you know, what would you like to improve upon when you think about your contribution to the world? And I go, I got to let up a little bit sometimes, <laughs> you know, and a part of it is this fear of like, not, accomplishing something not because i'm not capable but because i just didn't put the preparation in because then i actually underserved all of my talent and more importantly the people around me to help me get to where i am right so it's actually a question that i'm curious about like when i look at you and you know i tell you this all the time i'm like scott has is like this amazing like I guess, like combination of, of traits, like you're a very strong man, you know, very well built. And we are both vulnerable in that we're not afraid to be sensitive, you know, like this, this, like this interesting, like outside perspective of like, if I see Scott has in a room and I don't hear a word from Scott, I'm going to be on my best behavior, you know, (laughs) But then you talk to you, man, and listen, you know, you're so vulnerable. And that is not scary at all. Oh, no, I mean, but, you know, you're so vulnerable, but so intentional, man. And I have a very good question for you because I want people to hear it from you. Is like, talk to me about fear, man. You know, talk to me about what are you afraid of? When have you been afraid? I think people are afraid to admit being afraid. And they are afraid of the power in that fear, right? We're primal beings, right? That's how we survive, is recognizing when to be cautious, when to actually have a sense of trepidation. But especially with folks like you as, you know, chief marketing officer of a huge business and huge organization, everyone thinks that you are fearless. Um, So I hope it's not a tough question, man, but I'd love to, to talk to me a little bit about Scott Hessen and that word fear and how has impacted your life? I mean, I'm afraid of so many things. It's crazy. Um, <laughs> I have a fear of heights since I was a little kid. Um, and, and I know that that's not exactly the kind of fear you're talking about, but that, that feeling of being dizzy and disoriented and out of control um, that I get when I'm sort of an open space that's up high is, is how fear feels regardless of the, the source of it. What's interesting to me. And, and so I'm very lucky that I've been doing therapy off and on for a long time and I'm doing it actively right now. Um, one of the things I've been looking at lately that's really interesting to me is a lot of my fear these days is anticipatory fear. Um, it's the anxiety that comes because I think something bad's going to happen. And mm. I'm sniffing the wind all the time, trying to understand like where this next terrible thing is going to come from. And that can be personally, it could be professionally. Um, 
but but what i what i've been forced to confront by a very skilled therapist is that when the when the big thing happens when the crisis does hit and there are times when in business or personally where it's just like holy shit this is emergent stuff i'm actually pretty capable then hmm. so if i know that if i know that when the shit hits the fan i can totally handle that wow why am i brought to my knees when the shit's not hitting the fan imagine like so so that's been a big issue what am i afraid of i mean my my real fear is now um I have much less existential fear than I used to that somehow I'm going to die. I'm going to be in a perilous situation. Um, and I have much more fear for my parents, for my wife, for my kids, um, that they're going to be okay. And how am I going to deal with it if they're not? So that's a, a huge fear for me is just that the people that I care about are okay. And I do exhaust unfortunate cycles worrying about that. The, the other thing that's kind of interesting for me is um, when I was young, I was I was skinny and small and kind of sensitive, you know, liked poetry, liked theater, liked music, played the trumpet, was proud of it, you know, and I liked to go to the symphony downtown with my parents. And I liked good food that was kind of fancy. It wasn't just steaks and cheeseburgers and stuff like that. And the town, I was born in Chicago, but then we moved to a town in Ohio that was kind of a tough guy town. It was a lot of rednecks and very blue collary kind of like if you had a whiff of being soft about you, you're going to get victimized. Mm-hmm. And um, and I somehow couldn't camouflage, you know, my softness enough that, the, yeah, I had that when I lived in that town and we moved when I was 15, I often felt a sense of threat and physical peril just from some of these kind of predatory types that were around me it led me when I was older to I like to lift weights I've I've done some martial arts I'm really interested in UFC and boxing so I have the veneer of of some of the tough guy stuff but I mean I am fundamentally a pretty gentle being Uh, I'm not looking for trouble if I end up in a situation with somebody who's very aggressive I'm still anxious. Um, yeah, it's interesting. For the most part, though, at this stage of the game, I'm 54. The most important fear that I deal with is anxiety, which is which is fear of what could happen instead of fear of what's happening right now, if that makes sense. It does. It does. Yeah. It's. Um, we talked a little bit about that and. I share some of that sort of fear for me, for sure. I think it's like, I've always gotten, I don't know if you have a thought on this, but I am 41 years old and you would think at this age, I would walk into more rooms professionally or personally feeling like I belong, you know? Mm. And, you know, I don't all the time. I don't, and I, I won't show it, you know, I will, listen, I will put that Superman shirt and that cape on and I will wear it proudly and yeah. boldly, but underneath it, you know, I mean, I'm not afraid to say it. I spend a good portion of my life with a little bit of an imposter syndrome, you know, it's like, 
I'm not sure if uh, I'm supposed to be in this space. I'm not sure if I'm good enough to be in this space. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm strong enough to be in these spaces. And um, it has certainly made me, yeah, I'm, I will use the word. It has made me fearful in some engagements where I'm walking in with this anxiety around, can I be successful when I compare myself to the other voices or personalities or people in the room. And I think a lot of it maybe comes from like childhood, you know, like my dad was my hero, but man, Scott, this guy, he would walk into a room that he's the opposite of us. Like he was like the guy, when you saw him, he looked like the softest person, like very quiet. He wouldn't, he would disappear in a room. But his physical demeanor was just a big, tough guy, you know? And so he kind of influenced a lot of who I am today from this, you know, family vision and a little bit of a a toughness to my personality. But maybe I picked up this, like, sort of shyness almost and and maybe this self-awareness that can be damaging sometimes. So it's maybe a question for you about, you talk a lot about your artistic sense. You talk a lot about a lot of your personal interests. You also talk about your sensitivity and vulnerability. Where does that come from? Is there someone that you looked up to growing up? You know, is there a personal hero that you had? I love to know about what were some of your biggest influences growing up as a kid and how was that maybe shape, you know, some of your personality traits? So, um, the, the the obvious starting point for this is is my parents and they're you know uh, I had the interesting situation where my father uh, was raised by his mother without a father in the house uh, and it was basically my dad his mom his sister and his grandma mm. so my dad's entire upbringing was essentially surrounded by women mm. my dad is a very nice guy he's a physically uh, unassuming, not a very imposing guy. He's a very kind of gentle, kind, good, decent guy. On the other hand, I have a mom who is exceptionally strong, who um, she just looks like she should be a news anchor or the president of the city council or, and she just in a room just takes over. She's not masculine, but the energy that she has is very much a sort of command and control, uh, stereotypically masculine energy. So in my house, they're also physically gifted and stuff. They, they looked like they didn't care. And then the, the game would start and then like everything about their, their personality changed and they cared a lot. So for me, it was older kids or, or peers that had an ease about them that were cool. And I mean, I could I could literally like name these people exactly. Um, they were not movie stars, but in my like little life that I lived in Ohio and then in Michigan and stuff, they, they were like the movie stars in, in, in the way I was seeing my life. And they were people that I emulated and how I dressed, how I wore my hair, what kind of music I listened to. The, the good news for me, and I, I think back, you say you're 41 and you have this imposter syndrome kind of thing. Um, it's, I always did too. But I swear the good news for you, maybe, and, and, and that happened for me is that at a certain point, I didn't have it anymore. Hmm. Um, the more I figured out who I was, and I, I, I guess I accrued things 
beyond childhood. But the more I, I really just accepted, this is who I am. I'm strong. I'm also vulnerable. I'm really interested in uh, poetry and the arts um, and jazz, but I love to watch UFC and boxing. Um, you know, the, the more I accepted the, the all the weird conglomeration of things that make up my personality, uh, the less imposter syndrome I felt, the more I was me, the better it was. And um, I have to say, I, I don't have in any way feel that I deserve where I've arrived at or that I'm, you know, I'm just that good, but I absolutely have learned that everybody else is just as broken and just as possessed of that imposter syndrome, stuff like that. So I, I have for a, a while now, probably in my last two jobs. So, you know, closing in on 20 years, I'm 54. So maybe not quite that much, but closing in, you know, like I, I I'm very comfortable in most rooms I walk into now. Most people that I deal with, with I feel comfortable putting myself out in front of them I don't know how exactly it happened but I would I would say that it's probably at some point I just stopped faking any I don't pretend to know stuff I don't know I don't pretend to be any any better at something than I am and um, as soon as I stopped pretending uh, the whole imposter syndrome I was not an imposter anymore I'm just me and I'll show up in the situation be as, as authentic as I can and if it's not good enough then that situation uh, and the people that judge me not good enough are probably not for me. And God, I even just saying it, the sense of relief yeah. that I got when that ha- when that hit, oh, yeah. I, you know, fire me. You know, I, I mean, I say that like to a client, but if I can't do it, I'm OK. Fire me. I'll find something else. If you don't like me, that's fine. I've got other friends like I don't mean that in a cavalier fashion. I'm still trying to make my boss happy. I'm still trying to please the people I meet. I'm very much interested in being liked. But but my self-worth, I don't know, 18 years ago, stopped being so caught up in the way that people received me. So it's I haven't lost the preparation stuff that makes me not want to get mocked. I still want to do a good job when I show up. But but my self-worth isn't entirely tied up anymore in how people perceive me. Can you can you this might be a tough one. And if it is, just tell me. But I think people would appreciate it a lot of folks are trying to identify when that moment of self-realization happens because it could be happening and you just, it just walked right by you, you know, like I, I, I can, I can remember these two moments for me. I love, <laughs> Oh my gosh. When you talked about growing up and looking up to some of the older kids, I can, and, and remembering their names. I remember Carl and, and Terry and, the kids in my neighborhood that I really looked up to. But as a kid, I remember this moment when I went away to boarding school and I, I came home and I was playing sports and I was doing well in school. And I, I kind of stepped off the bus and I looked at them for the first time, like, okay, I feel good about where I am. I don't, I, you guys are great, but I feel like I have, I am starting to come into my own. And then I kind of remember professionally a, a moment when I was, working at Horizon Media, and I was in a room for a, a very important discussion with one of our larger clients, and just, Scott, have you ever felt like you're just floating? Like you're just, it's just automatic. You know, the words are flowing, the, the energy is right, and everything is going, and I walked out of that, and I go, okay. I think I think I think I'm kind of realizing who I am and getting comfortable with what that sounds like. 
I don't know if it's as vivid for you, but you said 18 years ago, you know, is when you yeah. stopped this. What happened 18 years ago? Walk me through that time, man. Yeah, so my timeline might be a little suspect, but it's a, but let's say give or take three years or something. But um, I'm gonna I'm gonna there there th- there's gonna be a multi-parter, and uh, I apologize, but um, great man. I do remember, so I'm going to go back to um, like fifth grade, um, city wrestling tournament, Hamilton, Ohio. Um, I'm doing the wrestling. I'm following everything that I like pay so close attention to my gym teacher, Mr. Malakote, who teaches me like, you know, like, here's what you do. Here's, this is what, if the guy does this, you do this. This is, uh, if you start up on bottom position, you can, you can do a sit out and you can, you know, turn into his, you know, all this stuff. So, So I'm like, city tournament everybody in this town you do the wrestling as part of your gym you go to the city tournament i won a couple of matches against other kids that were just as feeble as i was you know you do it by weight and then i go into this match against this kid and this this particular kid was one of the like tough kids like he had a name that sounded really tough and he what was his had name? a terrible what was his name lamont hubbard yeah, he sounds tough. <laughs> and get this, Lamont Hubbard is a white kid. Lamont, you got a, you got a white kid named Lamont, man. He he grew up like so. So he just he had like a bad, he had a bad bull haircut, you know. Like he just he didn't wear nice clothes, but all that stuff to me meant that he was tough. And he just like he like I don't know, he seemed like a villain from a movie or something. Yeah. So it's like I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm my I think it's my semifinal match I'm up against Lamont. And so I'm pretty sure he's just gonna just kick my ass because that's what he was capable of doing. And I think I might have cried a little bit. And Mr. Malicote said, You actually know what you're doing. He has no idea what he's doing. He's gonna go in there and spaz out, just relax, and and, and then do what you know how to do. Like you're you're one of the kids who paid attention. You know how to wrestle. He doesn't know how to wrestle. He's like, this isn't a fight. It's a wrestling match. And, and I absolutely outpointed him. I didn't pin the guy. He was strong and ornery and stuff like that. But it was like from the get-go, I was just like cruising along. Hmm. That was a – I mean, I'm 54, and I'm going back to when I was 11. But I'll, trust me, that's in here. The next – there's two other things I can do quickly that were so validating – um, number one was I got to do a, a TED talk like 10 years ago. I'd been given all these speeches and I'd, I've literally done 700 some speeches now to Coke and Pepsi and Nike and Adidas and the NFL and the NBA and stuff. So I'm getting a lot of confidence in doing that, that I can give speeches. And that's really big. And, and probably the first hundred, I was terrified, but you get a hundred under your belt and you're doing it. Okay. At some level, you have to be like, okay, I can do this. So I get invited to give this TED talk, the TEDx talk in San Francisco and the Yerba Buena Center where they do all the Apple events. And I was just scared to death. And and when I did it, the crowd laughed. They cheered. All my fellow speakers came. Like there was, I couldn't argue with myself. I did it. I was like, I just did that. I just flip and did that. And then it went on YouTube. And everybody else's speech from that day went on YouTube. But mine was just like, like it was like, oh, two days later, there's 100,000 views and stuff like that. So that was hugely validating. I'm like, I did that. And then a few years back, Another And the, the, the beauty of giving presentations is I get the constant validation that I need. A few years back, the dean of the college that I graduated from invited me to get the commencement speech. Wow. She, sheer flipping terror. Um, I wrote it like every day for like three months. I would, I would 
be working on it, like go into a room for an hour and then I would like record it and workshop and stuff like that. But I got the first ever standing ovation for a commencement speaker that the dean was aware of. Maybe uh, obviously there some point there wasn't, but it was like so overwhelming to see. And it was at a place that mattered to me, you know, um, and my parents were there and uh, uh, my friends were there and stuff like that. And it's just like, man, the, I don't, you can't get that out of my body. It's just in here. It's on board now. And I, I feel lucky that those two, those are from Lamont Hubbard to the, the, the Ted talk in the commencement speech. There's obviously a lot of years and there's been a bunch of little kind of moments where I'm like, okay, I'm pretty good. But uh, it's almost like I need stuff that I can't argue with. It's just objective. Yeah. I did beat him. I did give that speech and get, and, and get views. And I did give the commencement speech, get a standing ovation. Like every time my, my script goes, you're not that good. I'm like, this is tangible and I cannot argue with it. And I really do think like having given all the speeches, all the presentations that I've given, that was, that was transformative. It was over a bunch of years and it just, it, they were on like accumulated confidence and validation in a way that, now, if I screw up, it just doesn't knock the whole Jenga down. You know, I've still got a, there's enough of a solid structure there, even if I have a misstep. Oh, my gosh, man. <laughs> I, I got chills imagining the commencement speech. Um, that was the coolest thing ever. <laughs> I don't know. You know, there's probably I should have a greater <laughs> ambition. But I felt like when I did that in the days after and probably every day since, I don't I feel like, OK, I'm done. Like everything's yeah. gravy. Yeah. I, At my school, you know, it was like, shit. That, that's what I was going to say is I'm not in your head, so I don't want to speak on your behalf, but I'm imagining that for me. And believe it or not, I actually watched my commencement uh, <laughs> with my kids a few days ago. I found the old uh, VHS, VHS tape. And Scott, man, I was a ball of water man like I got so teary-eyed watching it and it was because not the commencement not me graduating but there were three teachers three professors that they stood by me and they supported me so much through my four years man always they were like father and mother to me while I was there and I saw them and I had never seen it I never seen it i saw this little sort of view of them when i walked up to get uh my degree and the joy on their face man and i just imagined like people care you know like so if i were given a commitment speech i feel like the joy for me would be that feeling of giving back you know like guys you put so much into me so much into me this guy that I still don't know how I got here but you gave me all this time and energy and support and for me to just have a moment here to give back I mean I'm 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 I'm, I'm I might lose it talking about it and it's not even uh, my story but gosh man because man that's amazing Scott well it was one of the things that was amazing is it's like all right what do I have to do ask the dean like what what do you want me to cover he's like it's yours do whatever you want with it and so then it's like okay I'm, I'm going to mention my grandma 
because she came to my commencement, even though, and I, and I had an incomplete, so I didn't get to graduate, but she was awesome. I got, I got to mention my parents and, uh, I got to mention my best professor. I got to mention the, uh, the owners of the bars and the restaurants that are many of whom are still there. Like, so the opportunity to, I, I got to, I'd become really friendly with the Dean who was just the greatest guy ever. So I got to have back and forth with him and just in a way sort of thank him for having chosen me and stuff like that. Um, he sent me a book afterwards, which is like a photo book that he had made up. He had the official photographer went through and made up this photo book and wrote a nice thing in it and sent it to me as kind of a keepsake of it. I could freaking look at it every day. I could, I mean, I probably need to put it away literally and figuratively so that I don't, so I don't rest on my laurels, but I swear to God, like that's the first time I remember a feeling like I just don't need anything else. Like it's the first time I remember feeling everything is gravy from here. Man, man, Scott, listen, it's been a great conversation with you, man. You know, you inspire me. And with the time we have left, um, I'd love for you to leave us with a very inspiring perspective. And that is what I like to believe most people have, which is a personal creed, you know, uh, a personal set of rules, you know, things that they live by, a code, so to speak, you know? And over the stories that you've told me, the course of your life, Scott, you've experienced more than most people have. And you wake up with a very strong intention from what I can tell. And I love for you to talk to me and talk to others about your code, you know, your truth. What do you sort of live by when you say, this is one thing that I won't break this rule. This is the most important thing to me and my value and what I bring to the people and community around me. Um, if there is a creed that you live by or a code that you feel is very important to your way of life, uh, I'd love for you to share that with me. Mine is like so simple and almost like Mitch Albamy. I wish it was more uh, warrior-like or or uh, profound, but it's, it's what I would say to my kids when I dropped them off at school in the morning and they would roll their eyes and they'll, if they're, you know, they'll still, they would still roll their eyes at this, but it's my code that I was trying to imprint on them. I just think generally, whether you're at work or you're at school or you're going into Costco, there's just a lot of suffering around us. There's a lot of people that, are underdogs for one reason or another. Then, so what I what I would always say to these guys is, do something nice for somebody that needs it. Hmm. It's so simple. But on any given day, if I've lost my way or if I'm suffering or or you know, I just try and think like, if once you become attuned to other people's suffering on a million different levels, whether they're sick or they're oppressed or they're having mental challenges or whatever, once you become attuned to it, you can see it everywhere. You can see it in a room full of strangers as well as you can if you're sitting with your family. And so I'm not going to pretend like, I, uh, like I'm great at doing this all the time, but if there's one thing, I do think a lot, do something nice for somebody that needs it. Um, 
I wish it was more profound, but I really think it's uh, it's an unbelievably centering thing for me, and I will try very hard to live up to it uh, every day. Stop.